Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Luke 7, from verse 36 to verse 15. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him, and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, and the other 50. Neither of them had money to pay back. So he forgave the debts of both of them. Now which of them would love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. Did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not give me oil for my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, how many sins has been forgiven? As a great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her. Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Tadu. Morning, everybody. Morning. Uh, nice seeing everyone here. And, um, uh, again, if you're coming for the first time. Really appreciate your coming. I hope that you have a blessed time with us. All right, I'll just say a word of prayer and then we go into the Word of God. Heavenly Father, we ask that you now come and send your Holy Spirit to be with us and to make much of Jesus Christ so that you alone will be honored. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, we pray. Amen. So I'll just say a bit of introduction again. As you have said, City Church, we're a gospel-centered urban church. And we're looking to start, our inaugural service is meant to be on the 8th of January next year. But we are trying to take between this period of uh, January, uh, of September to December, to actually, if you like, test run, but actually have uh, services where we're looking into some of the things that we believe and that we hold and would like to see developed in the culture of this church. So every month we're kind of taking something 
um, a, a series that, that matters to us. So for instance, we said we're a gospel-centered urban church. And so in the month of September, we did everything that had to do with the gospel. This month, we're doing things that have to do with the church. Next month, and actually maybe a little bit into um, December, we're going to be looking at things that have to do with being an urban church and basically looking at things that we as negotiators actually find unique in the kind of challenges that we are faced with. So we'll be looking at marriage and we'll also be looking at how our faith and work is being integrated. All right? But today, and so I said we're looking at church today, we're looking at something that I think everybody will be excited about, right? Everyone is excited about today is the day we've all been looking for because we're talking about money. Church and money, I cannot see any excitement on anyone's face. <laughs> you know, I don't know, maybe it's only the pastor that should be excited about this. I, you know, it's really, it's really funny. I, I was thinking in my mind that this is going to be the day where probably we will lose half the members of this church, depending on how it goes, all right? But, but there is a reason why we're doing this. How many of us have heard the phrase, follow the money? Follow the money, right? So if, you, if you're into series, right, there's one very good one. It's called The Wire. ran from 2002 to 2008. I don't know how many of us watched it. But it was a, it was a crime drama series. And in one episode, a guy called Lester Freeman is a detective, right? When he was investigating dealings of a Baltimore criminal gang, this is what he said, right? He said, you follow drugs, you get drug addicts and drug dealers. But you start to follow the money and you don't know where it's going to take you. If you know the story of a guy called, and it's not a story, it's history, Al Capone. Al Capone, right? You remember Al Capone in the, in, after the Great Depression in, in the US, they banned alcohol, so the, the, the prohibition. But he was bringing a lot of alcohol and he was doing a lot of organized crime. They could not pin Al Capone on any of those crimes. You know what they pinned him on? It was his accountants. It was for tax fraud. What did they do? They followed the money. And in many ways, as Christians, or even just as human beings, where we devote our money, and I would even add, think of three T's, our time, our talents, and our treasure, where we devote them says a whole lot more about us than we actually think. No matter how much we say we value someone or we, we, uh, we love someone, it's our devotion to the person in some of these things that actually prove whether that is true or not. You can say that, oh, you know, you meet a man that says he loves his wife, he loves his wife, but only buys her one present every year. Well, you know, but yet he buys himself like... In fact, the fact that people buy presents for themselves is already a big problem, isn't it? If you, if you meet a guy, if you're, if you're dating a guy that says he loves to buy presents for himself, well, get the hint. It's not someone you should marry. Now, Jesus says, even this way, that you cannot serve God and you cannot serve money. In him saying that, he's pitting God against money and saying it is possible to actually follow money than following God. In other words, money reveals something deep about our spiritual condition. So if you really want to know what a person is about, i say it again, follow the money. Now you see, money and church discussion, I understand, it's a very, very sensitive, sensitive uh, uh, topic. It's super sensitive, to be honest. And if you're coming here for the first time today, I really feel bad that this is the message that you've actually come into. But some people actually, it almost is as though they go into a particular church and all they hear is money. And, you know, it's almost like, was this designed actually to meet me? 
Now, there are two ways I think sometimes we actually react to this, and neither of them are helpful. Now, if on the one hand, you go, you've been in places where, you know, the discussion of money is overwhelming, that would be one reaction. And you, rightly so, we run away from it. I think a lot of people have actually been driven out of the church because all they hear is money, money, money. I was looking at someone out of town recently, and the girl is so, she's frustrated because she's giving to the church, doing everything, she's a student, and you know, you get any small money, the church is asking you because they're trying to build something, and really, you feel like you've been squeezed for everything. Money there overwhelms the discussion. In another way, you can actually totally avoid it, right? I have that church background. We never spoke about money. In fact, my last, the last church that I was at, it was such a big deal when the pastor actually spoke about money. I think he spoke about money. He had a sermon of money once in every two years. And even when he did it, you could see he was visibly uncomfortable. Now, we want to try to avoid that in this church. We want to actually follow the biblical way. If it, the Gospel of Luke that Teddy just read from, Jesus speaks about money. Some will say a third of the time the, in the book, or maybe a quarter, whichever one, he significantly thinks that money is, a, is something to talk about. The question is not whether we talk about money or not. The question is how do we talk about money? And I think we shouldn't just talk about money on its own, but put it in the wider context of generosity. And so... In that vein, we're going to look at three points in this message on gospel generosity. Today, we're really looking at the spiritual condition. Next week, the how-to is what we will look at. So we're taking it in two messages, all right? Gospel generosity. So today, we're going to look at it in two points. Uh, three points. Two points. Yeah, that's almost heresy. Three points. One is the little, uh, uh, the little love. Second is great love. And the third is greatest love. Little love great love and the greatest love. Well, if you want, you can call it the little lovers, the, the great lovers, or the, and the greatest lover. Alright, so let me just say a little bit about the setting in this Luke 9 and uh, that, uh, Luke 7 that we find ourselves, right? It's a party. It's not your average party, though. It starts off in verse 11 of Luke 7, where Jesus has come into this particular town is called Nain. He's been in another town called Capernaum, which was in verse 1. Now, in Nain, he's actually done miracles, he's actually done teaching and done healing. So, this particular rich guy, who is also called the Pharisee, as the custom of the day, threw a party for Jesus, right? Or maybe it wasn't exactly for Jesus, but certainly threw a party, and Jesus was one of the guests of honor. You actually invited people who are great teachers around on those days. And guess what? Jesus went. My very first point here is that Jesus went to parties, so should you. Let's move on. Alright, so he, he went and it was not just an ordinary party because they weren't sitting down like we were. They were reclining, as you see, in verse 39. Uh, sorry, uh, they were reclining, as you see, in verse 36. Now, to recline meant that what he, he, he put his right hand, you, you rest on your left hand, almost like on the table, you almost have a cushion, and then you kick your leg out, right? Now, they allowed poor people around into the party, but they were meant to be seen not to be heard, right? It was a weird, it was, it was being generous to so the poor people, just come around, just don't say anything, we give you the leftovers. But the people who are uh, the distinguished guests would actually come around the table, they'll lean on their left hand, they'll use their right hand to actually eat, and then they kick their legs out. And that's how this woman, this unscrupulous woman, this woman who has, a woman of ill repute comes in and she's able to wet her tears, uh, wet Jesus' feet with her tears, she's able to wipe it with her hair, 
she's able to kiss it and pour this perfume that she has put in an alabaster box on him. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to a party where everything is going well and then one crazy uncle just says something stupid and there's tension. Or you see the guests, uh, the, the, maybe they, maybe I, this has happened quite literally in some home and bed, right? Husband and wife getting married and then the wife's family starts to fight with the husband's family. I've actually seen that one and eventually the husband started telling the wife how the family was bad and she started telling how the family was bad and actually they, they, never, they didn't go back home together, right? Okay, that's an extreme. <laughs> My point is that have you ever been to a party where everything goes wrong and then tension fills the air? Now, this was one of them. Because in that society, things had to be done properly. Propriety was actually valued. And all of a sudden, this woman comes in and is really doing some things that look quite, at least, scandalous. Tension in the air. And so in verse 39, this Pharisee starts to think about this thing. And he starts to judge Jesus in a way based on that. If this man were a prophet, he would know this kind of person. He would not allow. He would have stopped this woman. Because this woman is actually quite sinful. And that takes us into this fascinating thing I really want us to look at. Because this man is a Pharisee, he takes the Bible seriously. But apparently, this taking of the Bible seriously does not affected his character. And what we are looking at and examining this passage, what we see of this character, is Jesus takes the aspect of generosity to help us see something about the Pharisee and something about the woman. He speaks of it in a parable, and he actually eventually speaks of it actually. He uses the thing of generosity to say something about their personalities. All right? Now, I don't know if you're into, some of us that probably tried for jobs and all that, we are into personality profiles, you know, Myers Break personality profile and all that. But there are some other personality profiles. There's even the money personality profile. I don't know if you've heard of The most common one says you're either a giver or a saver, a warrior, or you're a spender. Now, some husbands will be looking to their wives now and saying, yes, I know that spender, she's, she lives right with me, right? Sometimes I actually worry when my wife says she's going out, you hold the phone and the alerts just start coming in and it's not of credit. Now, those ones I just mentioned are based on external attributes. Now, this book I've been reading, and I think this guy does a very fascinating job, right? His name is Chad Hamilton. He's a financial expert. And the name of the book is Deep Wealth, An Exploration of Money, Meaning, and What, it really, and what really Matters. Now, what he does is that he identifies four personality profiles. And these are not based on just external attributes. They are based on the driving underlying emotions that actually drive our spending. All right? So the first one is the pleasure seeker. The second one is the mogul. The third one is the guardian. And the fourth one is the staff. Now, if you are a pleasure seeker, the driving thing or your primary motivator really is comfort, right? Um, we have two cars, but I can't take the other car for a party. I want a particular car that actually I use every single day. And then we have the one for parties, and then we have the one for family. You know, you don't want anything to interfere. We have work to do in the house, but two minutes are not enough. I think we should double that and have probably like four. Anything that is going to cause you stress, you don't want to have. So money becomes the answer to that. Money becomes, your ultimate meaning for money is freedom. Because if you have enough comfort, you're going to have freedom. And therefore, your worst nightmare is anything that has to do with stress or demands. But how do you think people around you feel in that regard? Yes. Because you are go you're going ahead to chase things, people start to feel like they are neglected. 
chasing all the money to get that comfort, which never actually satisfies, and therefore you have no real lasting friendship. What about your, the mogul? It's quite interesting is that he gives us characters that he feels epitomizes these particular, uh, popular characters that epitomizes these particular profiles. Who wants to know, and this book was written in 2015, who wants to know who he thinks the mogul was? Who personified? I think we all know. The guy's name is someone called Donald Trump. And this was written in 2015. And the, here, the driving force is not so much how much I can get, it's actually power. It's influence. It's how people see you. Why? Because status matters. Now in Lagos, we have many people who are driven by this notion. Maybe some of us here. The accumulation of wealth is so much about how people see you. You see, just like Donald Trump, it's not so much, you don't really care that much about whether people like him. You care very much about people, whether people respect you. I feel that a lot when I go to Abuja, right? You know, you just go there, land cruisers coming in, and you see one big man wearing white, obviously, native, and he's coming, and people are just running around, and he puts his head up. You know, we love that. People respect you. He doesn't care whether in their mind they're saying what they've asked them. He just cares that what they respect him. And therefore, you're worried about being humiliated, and people are not treated like human beings around you. They're treated as objects. And it's the same if we go down with the Guardian, you know, control, trying to control everything around you, money becomes that answer. In fact, most people like this are savers, right? Security is the most important thing. If I just get this amount of money in my savings, even if there's a Great Depression, I think, you know, by putting some maybe mathematical models, I know that my family is safe, my child will still be able to go to Harvard if she wants, and secure the family estate and all that. People like that, you know what happens there? Emotions fluctuate with those stickers that run under on Bloomberg or MSNBC, right? The moment you know Japan, something has happened, there's the yellow, oh my god, you know. They, but after you know, because their bonds and all their things are actually running with that. And then finally, you have the ones that seek approval. I don't know if you ever heard of a guy called Andrew Carnegie. Carnegie is probably one of the greatest philanthropists ever, right? So many things, even till today, and he lived. He, he lived mainly towards the late uh, 19th century, early 20th century, but this man gave so much. But he gave so much because he wanted people to like him. In fact, he kept a record of all the newspaper journalists that actually wrote good things about him. And so it's like that we give, you know, somebody's having a party, you give them money. Did they say thank you to you or not? You are recording whether they said thank you and how lavish a thank you was. But you find yourself worth in it. And therefore, the thing that gets you the most is whether or not people accept you. If they reject you, that hurts you. And so sometimes you overwhelm people. You keep giving them, even at the time, you say, don't worry, it's okay. You overwhelm, you smother them. Now, these are driving emotions for what we would say, how we spend our money. Now, the Bible has even better language for it. Because if you either love comfort, power, control, or approval, if what you think money can give is freedom, image, security, or love, it means that you are serving or loving something else more than you are loving God. You know what the Bible calls them? It calls them idols. The primary motivator or the all your ultimate aspirations are idols and they control you. What you love controls you. You love them much, so you love God little. This was the Pharisees' problem. Check what 47b. He says that whosoever has been forgiven little, what? Loves little. 
Notice when Jesus is actually castigating this Pharisee in verse 46 b uh, 44 b to to uh, uh, to 46, he mentions you did not, you did not. Notice that you did not. You did not give me water. You did not give me a kiss. You did not pour oil on my head. In other words, Jesus knows that there is something in the way we react with the love or the generosity that we actually give, there's something it says about our personality. You see, the thing about it is, the Pharisee did have a relationship with Jesus, didn't he? He respected Jesus, he brought Jesus into his home. He actually even threw a party for Jesus. So you'd say, well, this man must value Jesus that much. Have you never thrown a party for people you don't like? Or at least invited people to a party you don't like, right? You know that, you invite them, you just say, I wish these people trained their children better, Shan. Don't snow allow your child to break my bus or something. But they're around. This man respected Jesus. But we see something that he didn't love Jesus much. You know, familiarity breeds content. He sat next to Jesus on the same place. Because though he thought Jesus was an important person, he also thought himself was a pretty good important person as well. They were kind of contemporaries. He's a healer. He actually reads the Bible, right? He actually teaches, but he actually those out well. You know what's there? You, you, are, you, are, you are excellent in your own particular uh, field. I'm excellent in my own field. Let we excellent people come together. That's how he viewed Jesus. He liked Jesus in some measure, but his identity in relation to who Jesus was actually affected how he was generous with all that he had. And so far too many of us Acknowledge Jesus. We recognize Jesus. We respect Jesus. He's even a very good teacher. Or, you know, he's someone I've grown up with. Of course, now I am in Nigeria and I'm a Christian. I was born a Christian. I have to like Jesus somehow. But yet, we don't really know who Jesus is. And so, because of that, we use other forms and models as to how we own our money. We say, I'm a self made millionaire. And even when we give to charity, is a way to justify it. Well, I've done my own bit. And so we argue contentiously when we're in church about, you know, what percentage is it that I need to give? Just let me know the percentage so that when I give the percentage, I know I've actually done my thing. Jesus, you've had your own. Now I have to actually do what I need to do, seek my pleasure, or actually continue to build my profile. Like in the church that I used to worship at, fantastic church, but this was a problem. Because this church was made up of people who I would say vast majority, well-educated people, well-to-do, probably about 600. Our annual budget was actually about two or three times less than it should have been. And yet, by October, what constantly happened was that we had to have a gift, a gift day. Because we've actually not met in terms of our giving the budget. So we have to have, ask everyone, okay, can we all contribute? So what happened was there was a, spirit, a culture in the church that really cringed at church budget surpluses. Why? Is it not God's work? You understand, right? Why should we be exceeding the budget? Let us just spend exactly what we need. So by the time it's, maybe we've made about seven-eighths of the budget, we now say, okay, what do we need to actually make 100%? All right, we will not give more than that. It's a spirit of saying, just how much do I need to give to Jesus? It says something about our relationship with him. And you know why? Because our perception of what forgiveness is, is also little. We love little because, verse 47, 
we have been perceived to be forgiven little. So that one profile along all these is the one who loves little, the little lover. Let's read to another one. Point two, the great lover. Or the great lovers. Let me pause a little bit and say something about giving. Giving itself, I can take that off, because people will concentrate more about that. If you want the slide, just ask me, I email it to you. <laughs> giving itself, most times we want to give to get something. Right? We see, and unfortunately, we see that in many, many, maybe many churches that some of us have been to, you know, you sow something, you sow money to get money again. I think the Bible actually teaches something radically different. But first of all, giving itself is an is, is a benefit as an end in itself. What do I mean by that? In Acts 20 verse 35, we already know this famous verse where Jesus says, it is better to give than to receive. What did he mean? Now let me give you through two illustrations of that, a story about it, and also maybe a bit of social science research about it. So listen to this story by a guy called Jeff, all right? Have you, ever heard, have you ever had one of those moments where instead of minding your own business as you normally do, you feel compelled to get involved? I don't know about negotiations, about normally minding their business, but let's move on. A few months ago, I found myself in a situation like that. I just finished having lunch with a friend and hopped into my car, fully expecting to continue with my usual day, when the man in the car next to me caught my attention. Even though my window was closed, I could hear his phone conversation and immediately knew he was upset. Not wanting to eavesdrop, but unable to turn a blind eye, I rolled my window down a little bit and listened. He was in a tight spot. His wife had just been to the hospital, needed medicine they could not afford. As he spoke, I could tell that he was not only distressed, but really had no idea what to do. After he got off the phone, I felt moved to talk to him. I rolled down my window and politely told him I had overheard some of his conversation. I asked if he was going to be alright, and he opened up to me, explaining he was unemployed and really had no money at the moment. He was there, in fact, to interview for a job, but right then, life was hitting him really hard. We didn't talk for long because he needed to go to his interview on time, but as he left, I knew I wanted to help him. There was an ATM nearby, so I drove to it and withdrew a little more than he needed for the medicine. I felt like a secret agent on a mission or something. Even, he, even his car window helped out by being open, uh, by being open a crack. I wrote an encouraging note and slipped it and the $20 bills through the crack. As I watched them floating down onto his seat, I felt a sense of satisfaction welling up from deep inside. I've never seen this man before and I've not seen him since, yet it felt so good to be able to meet his need that day. It felt so good. He felt something welling up within him. He had not received anything from this man, but there was the giving itself. The giving was an end in itself. Now, a few years ago, in a book that um, a professor, his name is Michael Houghton, he's in uh, uh, Harvard, he's an associate professor uh, of business admin, and another uh, researcher, Elizabeth Dunn, social psychologist, but also an associate professor at British Columbia. So they released the book, and there was one of the studies in that book that actually tried to measure the correlation between giving and happiness. Now, they did it across board for Americans. And they found that there was actually a, um, a positive correlation between giving, especially pro-social spending. Pro-social spending is money you do not spend on yourself, but you spend on other people and charity. There was a notable pro-social spending, uh, a positive correlation between 
social spending and happiness, there wasn't actually that much. It was quite insignificant between spending on yourself and actual happiness. Now you say, well, this, this, this was actually too general, right? Too general. So they decided to actually make it more specialized. They did it on workers, especially investment bankers workers, how they spent their bonuses. If they spend their bonuses on themselves, or bought invested in something, or if they spend their bonuses on other people for social spending. And there was a correlation, positive correlation between their sense of happiness at the ones that actually spent for socially and their, um, their, 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 their giving. But it's okay, maybe it's just workers, right? People that have money. Well, they try it on students. People that really do not have money. They gave them money, said spend this money on yourself or spend on somebody else and what have you. Again, those that spent on themselves, there wasn't really any change. But the ones that spent on other people, irrespective of how much they spent, again, proved to be happier, significantly happier than the others. But you say to me, well, that, the students were in British Columbia, so that's Canada. You say, that's America, that's Canada. They didn't try it in Africa, right? Believe me, I spent money on myself, I feel great. Well, they tried it in Uganda, one of the poorest countries in the world. And again, the same result happened. You say, maybe they just picked Uganda. You know, in East Africa, they'd be strange. They should try it in West Africa. Well, they decided to hire Gallup, and Gallup did a poll all around the world, and it was clear there again in this global survey that almost every country, in almost every country, giving and happiness were positively correlated. And it starts to prove something. It's almost like we are created to give. Does that make sense? If what the Bible says about human beings is true. We are created in the image of a God who causes the rain to fall on both the just and the unjust. When Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive, of course, the blessing on the person who receives the money is obvious, but Jesus was accentuating on the giver, not the receiver. So you see, personal benefits are a great source for motivation to actually give. But can I suggest to you that if you're doing it for personal benefits alone, then actually you're giving, you're almost like the guy who is doing it for the approval of people. Your giving actually becomes not about the person, but it then becomes about you. So we need a greater motivation, a deeper motivation to give. Now notice that the Pharisee, in the Pharisees, you did notice that we pointed out, Jesus also gives a but about the woman. When the Pharisee did not this, did not that, did not this, he said, but... She wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her, her, her hair. But this woman has not stopped kissing my feet. But she has put perfume on my feet. This woman's display of generosity was really extravagant. It was scandalous. In many ways, it was, it was exuberant. And she did it for Jesus. And Jesus in Matthew 25, 31 46 says, when you do it for these, my, uh, my brothers, the least of these, you actually do it to me. So in many ways, we do what we do to the people of God and generally population and uh, the humanity generally is doing it towards Jesus. Notice though that she wasn't doing it necessarily, at least we don't get that from the text, for a personal benefit. She was doing it in response to something. The difference between the two servants in the parable, if you notice, was that one respected with little love and the, 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 the servant that actually was um, owing 50 uh, denarii, which would be like two months wages, workers' wages, 
was actually the Pharisee. And the one that was owing 500 was actually the woman, right? She knew that she was sinful. And that's like two years' wages. The Pharisee who saw Jesus as a mere teacher, not someone who actually forgives, that Pharisee actually loved him little. But this woman, by seeing how much Jesus had forgiven her, loved him much. Jesus is saying, change your personality from one who loves little or doesn't love at all to being a great lover. She went over and beyond what was required. Because actually, he did not have to do this. This was not required if you invited a guest to your place. But she went over and above because of what she felt she had received from him. She is that great lover. Now to my final point. This woman, I would say, responded in great love because she had received the greatest love. Now what's the greatest love of all? A few years ago, I had a broken heart. No, 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 I was, I was married, so it wasn't my wife that broke my heart. But I woke up to the news, and it was, in fact, funny enough, I was in bed, it was tossing that actually just showed me. And one of the greatest talents, I think, the world has ever known, just in terms of voice, someone that meant so much to me, in, her songs meant so much to me when I was growing up, had just died. Whitney Houston had died. I don't know if you remember where you were when Whitney Houston died. Okay, fine. It's not exactly where you were when Kennedy was shot. <laughs> but still, you know. Those songs meant so much to me, Whitney Houston died. Now, Whitney Houston, for me, you know, she's still, I still listen to her a couple of times during this weekend. And we live in an age where what celebrities say, right, carries authoritative voice. Therefore, for this question, what's the greatest love of all? I think we can bring in Whitney Houston, right? Because she actually sang a song about it. Very simple. What is the greatest love of all according to Whitney Houston? Well, the greatest love of all is learning to love yourself. That's the greatest love of all. And guess what? It's easy to achieve. All right. So we have that Whitney Houston, one celebrity. I don't want to go further with that. Why? Because I want to bring in another celebrity that actually disagrees with her. Right? We say we're bringing pitting celebrities against each other. If one is very, very popular, we say, well, she probably, probably should listen to her. But what if we have one that eclipses her? And I think I can bring one that eclipses her, right? This particular woman is well known more than we can use them all around the world today. All right? And she's actually been known even at greater, uh, in, in other previous generations. You know who this woman is? Should I bring her? Actually, the woman that is actually here in Luke 7, verse 36. In fact, in the Matthew's version of this, it says, Matthew 26, verse 13, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Before Whitney Houston came, people knew this woman. After Whitney Houston, people what? Knew this woman. Do we agree that she's a bit of a celebrity? So, what did she say about the greatest love of all? She did not say that the greatest love of all is learning to love yourself. Or that that love is within. We understand what Whitney Houston was trying to do, but that is still wrong. It's not the greatest love of all. This woman responded with great love because of the generosity that she had got by the greatest love of all. The greatest love of all is the love of all, the love that we receive by faith that brings forgiveness of sins. But whoever, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love 
has shown. Now, don't forget, she knew she was a sinner, unlike Simon. He did not perceive he was a sinner, and therefore the one who brought forgiveness didn't matter much to him. His attitude towards Jesus reflected that. Whereas this woman who had faith in Christ demonstrated the action of love through her generosity. In fact, 1 John 15 verse 13 tells us, There is no greater love that any man has than this, to lay down one's life for one's friend. Let me demonstrate this to you. Remember the parable. What did it cost the people to actually have their debts cancelled? What did it cost them to actually have their How much did they pay in having their debts cancelled? What? Nothing. So it was cancelled. It was for free. Now, it was for free on the one hand, but on the other hand, on the other hand it was extremely costly. To who? Right, because oh, we all know math, right? Someone, um, I borrowed, I, I borrowed um, five hundred thousand naira from Yemi. I'm unable to pay back. Yemi says, "Femi, I forgive you." It is zero to me, but cost Yemi what? Five hundred thousand. In this um, um, uh, framework. What we see here is something profound. Now, if you notice in verse 49, the Pharisees the cannot understand. Jesus, for 48, Jesus says to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Let me tell you a good story about David. We know David in the Bible, didn't it? David actually, one time, is king. He didn't go to war. He actually sees a woman who is actually bathing naked, and he actually asks her to come to him. He sleeps with her. She gets pregnant. And then, but her husband now returns. Her own husband returns. He's a noble man. David actually tries to, you know, tell him to sleep with his wife so that the pregnancy would be said to be his. The man didn't do that. He was an honorable man. Eventually, David gets him killed. And then, the prophet Nathan actually comes to speak to David and says, you've actually sinned greatly against God. And David actually repents. And then he writes Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, he says something that almost seems crazy, but it's actually deep. He says, against you only have I sinned and committed this great evil in your sight. What? Now, first of all, David sinned against Bathsheba. That's obvious. He actually slept with her against her will. David sinned against um, Uriah, her husband, right? Because, obviously, he slept with his wife and eventually got him killed. David sinned against the military because he actually got the military to kill one of their brothers. He sinned against the high command in the military because he actually interfered with them and therefore sinned against the whole nation. And then he has the cheek to then say, only you have I sinned. Because at the most fundamental level, every sin we commit against anybody and everywhere is first and foremost committed against God. And when you sin against God, only God can forgive sins. This is what they are challenging him. Who is this man that he can forgive the sins of this woman that she has not committed to him? Only God can forgive. To which Jesus says, yes. Because Jesus is God come in the flesh. And Jesus, for the offenses that were put on him, demonstrated the greatest love to this woman and to any of us here who have not yet believed in him. He went to the cross and took the debt. The consequences of our sins he took. There is greater love, no greater love than a man can show that to lay down his life for his friend. The difference between laying down your life for your wife and Jesus' own death is that his death actually accomplishes something. This is what this woman responds to. 
if we go on just talking about giving as something where I need to know exactly what to do, I don't want to go this, or why do we always talk about this? We will be seeing ourselves as people who actually have been forgiven into at least our perception. Don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about manipulation here. I'm not talking about trying to, you know, for us to be irresponsible. We're still called to steward God's money. But at the same time, Jesus commends this woman for her extravagance and her exuberance. Why talk about putting a ceiling where you always want to, should be trying to go above that ceiling? Now, how we then spread this money, whether it's to church or it's to whatever, if you want to know more about that, come next week. But for now, if you are someone who actually examines your life, you see yourself as one of those people in that profile, and you know it is because it's not that you've not heard about Jesus, it's not as though you feel like you've not been walking with Jesus, but you, through your act of generosity, you know that you've really not truly known this greatest love of all. Can I ask you to respond? He has, God has given us the most generous gift in Jesus Christ. Why don't you respond by believing in him? And therefore see your life radically change, including your generosity. But what if you are here and actually you truly know that Jesus has died for your sins? But you are struggling with the fact that sometimes it seems that your money, your time, your talent actually is given only, mainly for your own means. Only when it is convenient for you, not sacrificial, only when it's convenient for you do you offer it to others. Can I ask that you ask the Spirit of God to actually make Jesus' forgiveness for you more real and see your life transform through radical generosity. Ask the Spirit of God to fill you because it's only then Jesus Christ is made known well to you and you can respond like he, this woman did. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We appreciate it, O Lord, as it comes to us sometimes with red hotness, sometimes tender. And some of us would have received it tenderly, some of us, O God, would have received this as a piercing to our soul. Father, we ask that for every truth that has been said here, only that which is true, we pray, God, that you make our hearts ready to accept and to receive it. We pray that you allow everything that is in the superfluous of God to fall. But let that which is true of God come with the power of your spirit to actually change us. We are well God of the many abuses of God in our day. Many of these things are a scandal to the gospel. We want to reject them utterly. And yet, oh God, we do not want to slide into a sense of greediness. Help us, O oh God, to open ourselves to give so much of ourselves just because Christ has given us all things in himself. And we pray, O oh God, that even in this church, you will help us truly to be a people who are so generous with all of the things that you've given to us because we have received the greatest generosity from you in Christ Jesus. Do it for us, O oh God, through your spirit that is within us. And if there's any one of us here, oh God, that truly needs to know you, no matter how long they felt they've known you, but they've not known you in forgiveness of sins. And trusting in you for this great salvation in Christ. Father, would you accept them? For all that come to you, you will not cast out. Accept them, oh God, we pray. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. 
To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church. Love Jesus. Love people. Love Lagos.